Keys Hacker. Talk about a fried egg. I lasted about five minutes out there. I said, to heck with this. I'll do this in the morning. And I don't have any inside information. The lady that did it, she got in there. Don't I go. mean, she made it happen. And he doesn't shy away from opinion. And I do enjoy drinking cold beer at ballparks. So if that makes me a baseball fan, then I'm a diehard baseball fan. It's Hacker After Dark on 1010XL. And a very good Wednesday evening to you, Jacksonville. It is Hacker After Dark, 1010XL, 92.5 FM with Dylan Denmark. The Hacker Ryan Green with you. Glad you are with us as the middle portion of the week. We certainly have a lot to get into this evening. We got a great guest lineup. We're going to talk Jags. We're going to talk a little bracketology in the world of college basketball. A ton of different items to get into. Unfortunately, we had that situation out in Kansas City today with the uh, Super Bowl parade and uh, apparently a shooting out there. Uh, One person deceased, uh, up to 22, I believe now, were injured, including some children, which were defined by the police chief out there as people under the age of 17. Just awful. Awful, awful. Um, not going to preach to you tonight, obviously. I wouldn't want anybody to preach to me. But when there's kids involved, that is a terrible, terrible situation. And uh, you hate to see something like that, certainly, at a Super Bowl celebration. People were going to celebrate a world title for the Kansas City Chiefs. And obviously, uh, all we're talking about now is what happened and why it happened and how it happened and Go from there. So that that's unfortunately too common right now, and uh, it hits the sports world tonight there in Kansas City. So uh, prayers up for all involved. Having said that, we will talk sports. This is a sports radio program, and we are glad to do it. Coming up, Dave Kluge of Football Guys. We'll do a little analytics, talk a little Jaguars, a little Trevor Lawrence. We'll also talk bracketology, Jerry Palm, CBSSports.com, a little college basketball in the 9 o'clock hour. Every night here on Hacker After Dark, we do kick it off with a big deal of the night and Dylan Denmark. Let's do that right now. Time now for the big deal of the night. What's the big deal? What is the big deal? It is a big deal. On Hacker After Dark. All right. So here we go with the NFL offseason. Boy, Steve Wilkes. Fired today in San Francisco. The defensive coordinator for the 49ers let go three days after the Super Bowl. Didn't see that coming. Uh, I thought the San Francisco defense was very good this year. They were obviously very good when they beat Jacksonville 34-3. to They completely shut down Patrick Mahomes in the first half of the Super Bowl. Obviously, the 49er defense did not play as well in the fourth quarter and in overtime, but Did not see that coming as Steve Wilkes fired this afternoon as the defensive coordinator of the San Francisco 49ers. You can tell the offseason's coming because all the press conferences that are happening. In fact, here in Jacksonville tomorrow, Ryan Nielsen, the brand-new Jaguar defensive coordinator, will meet the media for the first time. It'll be interesting to hear from Ryan Nielsen about what he brings to the table for this Jaguar defense. In fact, tonight we are 26 days away from NFL free agency. You can start handing out franchise tags next Tuesday. 
You have a window from February 20th to March the 5th. We'll keep an eye on Josh Allen. That'll be that two-week window where the Jaguars could franchise tag Josh Allen. We also have the NFL scouting combine two weeks from tomorrow, February the 29th. Prospects are on the field up in Indianapolis for the combine February 29th through March the 2nd. But it got me thinking when I saw this yesterday, Anthony Richardson, remember him? Anthony Richardson has been cleared to begin throwing the ball up in Indy. He is six to eight weeks ahead of schedule on his shoulder surgery. And Anthony Richardson will join the ranks with C.J. Stroud, with Trevor Lawrence, and with Will Levis in the AFC South. Remember the entire offseason last year? Month after month, we had guys on covering the league, covering the various divisions. And the thought was, boy, the AFC South is terrible the worst division in football, and with that, it's going to be a division the Jacksonville Jaguars are going to own for the foreseeable future. Well, that did not happen, obviously. That did not materialize here in Duval County. To the credit of the Texans and the Colts, to the issues here in Jacksonville, the AFC South had three teams that finished over 500. The Jaguars at 9 and 8, the Colts at 9 and 8, and the Houston Texans who won the division at 10 and 7. You think about the other divisions in football, who had three teams 500 or better. AFC North did, Baltimore, Cleveland and Pittsburgh, and the AFC South did. They're the only two divisions in the AFC. In the NFC, only one division can say that, the NFC West with San Francisco, the Rams, and the Seahawks. So out of the eight divisions in the National Football League, only three had three teams 500 or better, I guess. And the AFC South was one of them. And all that talk about Jacksonville running this division for the foreseeable future, well, that's over now. If anything, there's talk about C.J. Stroud and Houston running this division for a while. Keep in mind, they just had the Offensive Rookie of the Year and the Defensive Rookie of the Year in Will Anderson. And now you throw Anthony Richardson into the mix. Again, Indianapolis went 9-8 and eight with Gardner Minshew at quarterback. We'll see what Tennessee does with Brian Callahan, their brand-new head coach. They still look like they're in the rebuilding phase. Doug Peterson is now the elder statesman of coaches in the AFC South. Think about that for a moment. You want to talk about the turnover in the National Football League. Doug Peterson, heading into 2024, is the longest-tenured coach in the division, entering year three. Shane Steichen and Indy will be entering year two. D'Amico Ryans in Houston will be entering year two. And, of course, Brian Callahan will be a first-year head coach with the Tennessee Titans. So the AFC South, I'm paying close attention to what Houston does, close attention to what Indianapolis does. Tennessee's got about a billion dollars to spend in free agency. They're going to be like the Jaguars two years ago. The Titans can sign a lot of people this offseason. It'll be very interesting to see what they choose to do with their money. 
But that narrative all last year from February to July that the AFC South will belong to Jacksonville for a long time, no, sir. That did not happen, and that probably will not happen moving forward. I'm not saying Jacksonville isn't still potentially the best team in the division. I'm not saying Jacksonville potentially can't win the AFC South in 2024, but they won't be the favorite. Houston will be the favorite. And I know Ballou has talked about this this week. I'll dive more into this later on tonight, probably a little bit tomorrow as well here on Hacker After Dark. And I'm actually going to ask Dave Kluge of Football Guys in less than 10 minutes about Trevor Lawrence. Um, Yahoo Sports yesterday released MVP odds for the 2024 season. They listed 12 quarterbacks, 12 quarterbacks on their list for MVP odds for the 2024 season. Trevor Lawrence was not among them. I was stunned by that. I was absolutely stunned. I'll pull up the list, but look, that to me is a little bit of an overreaction. I'm not saying Trevor had a great year last year, far from it. He had a very down year, a very average year. But to say that he's not among the top 12 in the MVP odds, here's the list right here. This is from Yahoo Sports. Patrick Mahomes, number one. Josh Allen, number two. Joe Burrow, three. C.J. Stroud, four. Followed by Lamar Jackson, Justin Herbert, Dak Prescott, Jordan Love, Brock Purdy, Jalen Hurts, and Matthew Stafford. And as I read that list, I would put Trevor in the top 12 of NFL quarterbacks, but Denmark, who do you replace Trevor with on this list? You don't replace him over Mahomes. None of them. Josh Allen, no. Joe Burrow, no. C.J. Stroud, no. Although it might be an argument there. Lamar Jackson, no. Herbert? Is Trevor better than Herbert? No. Harbaugh is going to get Herbert, right? Yeah, that's the thought, but Herbert had a down year as well. Trevor Lawrence better than Dak Prescott? Uh, I mean, quarterback by quarterback, Trevor's better, but Dak will have better stats because of the way McCarthy uses them. I would take Trevor over Jordan Love, and I would take him over Brock Purdy. Maybe I'm biased there, but I think Trevor Lawrence is a better quarterback than Brock Purdy and a better quarterback than Jordan Love. Uh, it's close. And then Jalen Hurts and Matt Stafford. So, I guess when you really get down to it, what we thought last year, Trevor being a top five quarterback in the league, he might still be top five, but he's top five in the AFC, I guess. Right? I actually, come to think of it, I'm not even sure if he is. All the good quarterbacks are in the AFC. Right. Mahomes, Allen, Jackson, Burrow. Good Herbert. Boy. Herbert. You take him over Tua? No, Tua's not in that class. All right, so you take Trevor over Tua? Yeah, that's that's not a that's not a question. Deshaun Watson. Uh yeah, Deshaun Watson hasn't shown that he can play a whole season. It's interesting though. It's interesting. Trevor's got a lot to prove in year four. There's a ton for Trevor Lawrence to prove in year four. Will he be doing that with a brand new contract, or will the Jaguars take a wait and see approach? Remember, Burrow got paid after year three. Herbert got paid after year three. Will Trevor? get paid after year three. And I'll talk about it all offseason long. Trevor Lawrence versus C.J. Stroud. 
I think that's going to be fascinating, and I would almost guarantee you that's going to be a primetime game on Thursday, Sunday, or Monday night. Jacksonville at Houston or Houston at Jacksonville, Stroud versus Lawrence will probably be in prime time next year. But who is the best quarterback in the AFC South? As it stands right now on Valentine's Day, as painful as it is for us to admit here in Jacksonville, it probably is C.J. Stroud. But Trevor has a chance to redeem himself, no question about it, in year four, which is going to be an awfully big year for him in his career moving forward. 641-1010 on the phone line and on the text line, designed by Lifetime Enclosures. We're talking sports on a Valentine's Day evening here on Hacker After Dark. Coming up next, Dave Kluge of Football Guys. They're all about fantasy football. They're all about analytics. We're going to talk Calvin Ridley. We're going to talk Evan Ingram. We're going to talk Trevor Lawrence, Josh Allen, among many other Jaguar topics. And we're going to do it next. Hacker After Dark on a Wednesday night in Jacksonville, Florida. And we're glad you're with us. It's 1010XL and it's 92.5 FM. Let's ring up another guest on the All-Pro Roofing phone line. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. We are glad you are with us. The NFL offseason officially underway now that the Kansas City Chiefs have hoisted another Lombardi trophy. Everybody is back to zero and zero, and teams now have six months, much like they did a year ago, to figure out how on earth they are going to stop Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, and the Kansas City Chiefs. With that, Dave Kluge of Football Guys, always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Dave, how you doing? Doing good. And, you know, you say having to stop Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey, I think the scary thing is the Chiefs are in a prime position to add a good wide receiver in a deep class this year. So I think it's going to be a lot more than just Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey Next year, the AFC is certainly looking pretty scary to anybody who's not a Kansas City Chiefs fan. Yeah, the AFC is absolutely loaded, and we thought Jacksonville right here in Duval County was going to be in that conversation. And Dave, 12 weeks in, they were 8-3, and three, right? I think for like three hours, they were the number one seed <laughs> in the AFC, and then they only become the sixth team since the turn of the century, the sixth team since the year 2000 to start 8-3, and three and to flat-out miss the playoffs, losing five out of six, and quite frankly, not looking very good in the process. What did you make of what we refer to as the collapse here in Jacksonville? Well, you know, it wasn't just Jacksonville. It seemed like nobody wanted to win the AFC South this year. I mean, all, any, any team towards the end of the season just needed to win a game, and it seemed like nobody can do it. Um, you know, I, I don't want to read into it too much. I know it's tough not to be – overreactive and see a team just kind of unwind at the end of the season like that and think that it's all doom and gloom going forward. But I think there were some promising things to take away from the season, despite the win loss record on the back half. I think Trevor Lawrence really is the guy. And I don't know how a lot of fans in Jacksonville are feeling right now. Um, You know, wins do kind of control everything. And when a quarterback's not winning, people start to panic a little bit, but there was a lot that I saw from his game, Uh, you know, some steps forward that he took, uh, last year that 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 I got pretty excited about. You know, he looks like one of the best deep ball players out there. And he was also learning to throw better across the middle of the field. He was kind of hitting every level in the passing game. So, you know, there's there's definitely some concern if you're an AFC South fan seeing what uh what the uh the Texans did taking a step forward with CJ Stroud and then, 
You know, there's obviously concern about what Will Levis could be and Anthony Richardson could be as well. You know, it looked like it was just going to be the Jaguars division for the next five, ten years is suddenly a little bit tighter. But I think the Jaguars still do have a promising future as long as they've got Trevor Lawrence. Dave Kluge of Football Guys. Now, Dave, you guys at Football Guys are fantasy football, your analytics, your a lot of different things. And I'm curious when you're very positive on Trevor because there's some concern here in Jacksonville. Now, I know he played the last six weeks hurt. In fact, the only game they won was when Trevor sat out, and, I mean, they played basically a high school team, let's be honest, in Carolina. But uh, Trevor played through a concussion or the concussion protocol, played through a shoulder, a knee, an ankle. I mean, he was banged up. But -hmm. you're still very positive on Trevor, it sounds. I am, yeah. And I think, you know, like I said, the, the biggest thing that we saw was him take a step forward as a deep ball passer. He was one of the most accurate deep ball passers in the NFL last year. The one thing that concerns me, and this isn't something we saw a lot of in his college, Dave, are the danger plays, the interceptable passes, the turnover-worthy plays, whatever you want to call him. Uh, he was making some head-scratching decisions, throwing some balls that he shouldn't. The good thing is that's something that's coachable. Um, you know, that's something that hopefully Doug Peterson can help him with that, and he doesn't make those mistakes in the future. Uh, overall, though, you know, he, he does have what you want to see from an NFL quarterback. Um, he's got the available or the ability to make uh, passes at every level of the field. Uh, he's got the rushing upside that you want to see in a modern-day quarterback. And those turnover-worthy plays that we talk about are something that you can easily coach out of a young quarterback's game. Dave, Calvin Ridley is set to become a free agent on Monday, March the 11th. We'll see if that actually happens or not. I think it's trending towards happening. Um, How vital is it for Jacksonville to bring him back, or do you think Jacksonville should move on from Calvin Ridley? Yeah, I think they've got to move on, um, unfortunately. Uh, You know, Calvin Ridley was – The guy that we saw a really exciting year from uh, when Julio Jones left Atlanta. I think that a lot of people were hoping that he would just, after two years off, be able to replicate that, and it certainly wasn't the case. Now, overall, he was able to have some big plays, and he scored some touchdowns, and that can kind of cloud the judgment a little bit when looking at his overall season. But he flat out wasn't that good. Um, You know, he struggled to separate. There wasn't a lot of consistency in his game. Um, I think that at this point in his career, going into his age 30 season, he's a guy that you'd look at as, you know, kind of a field stretcher, you know, maybe a number two, number three guy on a team. But looking at what he is, um, you know, they'd have to pay to bring him back next year. He's going to want to get paid a lot more than that. So I think it's better for um, Jacksonville to maybe look at some younger options out there. And this isn't a really deep free agency class. I mean, we just heard T Higgins is likely getting franchise tagged. You pretty much got Marquise Brown is the only guy that, you know, is, is, is on the right side of the age curve that's going to be available. And I don't know if he really fits with what Jacksonville is trying to do. So I think Jacksonville needs to look at the draft here. Um, Christian Kirk is great, but you know, he's not uh, a young spry guy anymore either. So I think what they need to do is draft that guy that can be the long-term number one, I've said it a few times now on this show. This is a really deep class for wide receivers, and they can get somebody at pick 17. They can get somebody at 48. Um, there's a lot of good wide receivers that they can draft this year that would become immediate starters, and I think that's where they should be looking rather than free agency or trade or bringing back Kelvin Ridley. Dave Kluge of Football Guys. You know, an offense, we talked about this, Dave, at the beginning of the year. You can have Trevor and ETN and Ridley and Kirk and Jones and Ingram, and that all looks great, right? But if you don't have an offensive line, it doesn't matter. And the Jaguar offensive line was awful. I mean, let's let's just be honest. It was awful. Uh, They probably need two, maybe three new starters on that O-line. Brandon Sheriff, God love him, but but it's getting up there in age. 
Uh, Luke Fortner, I really like Luke Fortner. I think he deserves to be on the roster, but I don't think he should be the starting center next year. I don't know what they're going to do about Ezra Cleveland. Cam Robinson's owed a lot of money. Are they going to pay that? You could argue Anton Harrison, the rookie, was the best offensive lineman consistency-wise they had all year. And despite the struggles on the O-line, ETN still was very good. And I just wonder what Travis ETN could become if he had even an average offensive line in front of him. I think Travis Etienne is one of the best running backs in the league. And, um, you know, something that we saw a lot of in college was his pass catching ability, you know, kind of being that check down guy for Trevor Lawrence. We've seen that translate quickly into the pros. There were some concerns about him coming off of that foot injury early in his NFL career and how he'd be able to bounce back. But he's looked better every single year since he had that one stretch where what I, I think he had six touchdowns in three games or something, you know, where he went on a heater in the middle of the season. And that's something that we could see him do consistently. He is that good of a running back. He's got the long speed. I think the one thing he could wait on a little bit is his patience behind the line. And that's tough. You know, you talk about being patient. Of course, that's a lot easier when you have the patience and your O-line is making holes for you. He doesn't really get that ability, so we see him when he does take these passes or these uh, uh, carries between the tackles, just kind of hit it with a full head of steam, even if nothing's there. If they could shore up that offensive line a little bit, I'd like to see what he can do uh, as a more patient runner because he's got the burst and he's got the long speed. We saw a lot of big plays from him this year. I I think pure talent-wise – Travis Etienne's a top five running back in the league. And the good news is he's still really young. So he's a guy that the Jags can hopefully lean on for the next three to five years. Dave, as we begin to wrap up a couple of more for all the thoughts and problems the Jaguars had in the collapse down the year, the one thing that they did do well was get the ball to Evan Ingram. Evan Ingram had one of the best years of any tight end in NFL history. Ironically, he didn't have 1,000 yards because he had 114 catches. They might need to work on that. But your thoughts on Evan Ingram and clearly establishing himself this year as one of the best tight ends in the NFL. Well, I thought Evan Ingram was a steal when you guys picked him up in free agency a couple of years ago. Uh, It seems like the Giants, you know, New York – Chicago, some of these media, some of these areas are really tough to play in because of the media and the fan bases. And I feel like everybody in New York just turned on Evan Ingram, despite a thousand yard rookie season, which is nearly impossible for a rookie tight end to do. So the fact that uh, Jacksonville was kind of able to scoop him up for cheap um, right when he was kind of hitting the peak of his career at age 28, I thought that was a really savvy move. I talked about how much I like that on Twitter and I wrote articles about it, but I think a lot of people had forgotten how talented Evan Ingram is. He has become that safety valve now. Like you said, couldn't hit a thousand yards, but over a hundred catches, he is just always open in the flat. He's that guy that Trevor Lawrence can lean on. And with tight ends, We see it all the time where these guys get off to slow starts and then they kind of hit the peak of their career at age 28, 29, 30, 31. So here he is not even 30 years old yet. I think uh, Evan Ingram, it is imperative that they try to sign him to a contract because he's still got a few years in the tank where he can continue to be that safety valve, that hundred plus reception guy for Trevor Lawrence. You know, you look around the AFC South, and and you mentioned C.J. Stroud, right? Anthony Richardson's going to come back. We know about Will Levis and Tennessee. The big question down here, how much money do you give Josh Allen? Because he's going to be franchised, I think, worst-case scenario. Best case is they re-sign him in the next couple of weeks. But Josh Allen's imperative, right? With all these young quarterbacks, you have to have one of the premier edge rushers in the league stick around here in Duval County. Yeah, these guys don't hit free agency. You, you, you just don't see that happen. Um, they're they're going to bring Josh Allen back, whether it's a franchise tag or a long-term deal. They have to. Um, you know, you mentioned it. There are three other good quarterbacks 
in the AFC South. Well, let's say two and a half. I guess the, the jury's still out on Will Levis, right? But Anthony Richardson looks good. C.J. Stroud looks fantastic. Uh, they, they absolutely need to bring Josh Allen back in some capacity. I, I, I Rarely do we see these guys hit free agency. I'd expect them to work out some sort of four or five-year deal so he's, he's there long term. Dave Kluge of football, guys. You mentioned C.J. Stroud. Anthony Richardson. Did you see enough of Anthony Richardson last year? Uh, I mean, what did he play? Three or four games. We obviously very familiar with him from his days at Florida there yep. with the Gators. But but Richardson, he looked good early, but now you throw him back in the mix with Stroud, with Lawrence. We'll see what Levis can do in Nashville. Potentially, Dave, the AFC South could be pretty good. Yeah, and I said that at the top of the show that we were doing here. You know, the AFC South, it looked like it was going to be the Jags. For the next five, ten years, and all of a sudden it got really tight in uh, a single year with these these three young quarterbacks all kind of stepping into their respective roles. I do think Anthony Richardson is good, um, and and you know just keep it as simple as possible. Uh, you know, there he's what you want to see in a modern day NFL. We're seeing this with Josh Allen up in Buffalo. We're seeing it with Jalen Hurts in Philadelphia. You don't have to be the best passer in the world. That rushing upside is just going to change the way the defenses have to play against you and makes the throws downfield even easier. So I think that Anthony Richardson does have some flaws in his game, but I think he's a much better passer than people realize. And like you said, if you're familiar with his game from Florida, you saw that all over his tape. You know, it wasn't just a rushing guy. You know, he's not a Malik Willis. He's not a Tim Tebow. This guy actually can throw the ball as well. So we saw it in a very, very small taste, but rushing upside was absolutely elite. He was making money throws all season long in the short season that he played. I think the biggest concern is that he suffered a serious injury on that throwing arm. And this isn't just a small, you know, standard procedure that he's going to have surgery and come back to 100%. I think the only concern with Anthony Richardson is that he doesn't recover 100%. But if he bounces back from this shoulder injury, doesn't change the mechanics of his throw or anything like that, I think Anthony Richardson is a, a guy that's going to be a problem for the AFC South. We couldn't stand Mike Vrabel here in Jacksonville and fitting enough that he goes out with knocking the Jaguars out of the playoffs. I was pretty surprised that Tennessee decided to part ways with him. What did so you make I, of the – yeah, exactly. I mean, what did you make of the Brian Callahan hire up there? Uh, you know, it seemed like a lot of people expected that to happen. Um, you know, I, I don't know too much about Brian Callahan, to be honest. I think that um, it looks uh, – you know, a lot, of, a, a lot of offensive coordinators can look good with the, uh, the, the, the crew that he had there. I didn't see a lot of creativity from his game or anything like that. So I'm a little bit, I don't want to say concerned, but it does seem like they downgraded, right? Going from Rabel to Brian Callahan. Um, I, I, I don't really, I, I've talked about it a lot on my show. I don't really know what to make of what Tennessee is doing here. Um, you know, they're obviously looking to build a more, pass happy offense I'd imagine um, but I think that they had a good thing in Brable and was kind of shocked to see them let him walk. Dave Kluge of football guys. Dave final thought I've seen you on social media one of the big topics you've wrote about you've discussed about a lot is the idea that Caleb Williams is going to go number one to Chicago what happens to Justin Fields that whole dynamic what do you think ultimately happens in the next two and a half months with the Bears at the quarterback position? 
Uh, that's a million dollar question. And we're going to be speculating about that a lot over the coming months here. Um, I, I think the bears just simply have to draft Caleb Williams. And I'm a huge Justin Fields fan uh, for anyone listening that doesn't know I was born and raised in Chicago. So my allegiance is with the bears and I was thrilled when they drafted Justin Fields. He's shown so much promise through his short career uh, with the, the, the game breaking plays, the big passes, the rushing, all that sort of stuff. But I think that after three years, we kind of know what Justin Fields is at this point. You know, he's probably a middle of the pack, top 12 to top 20 quarterback. I don't know if he's the type of guy that can elevate the talent around him the way a guy like Caleb Williams can. Now, of course, there's risk that Caleb Williams is a bust. It happens. We've seen Jamarcus Russell. We've seen Tim Couch. We've seen these guys go number one and not pan out. But typically, when you draft a guy number one overall, you're getting a guy who's going to throw for 4,000 yards, a guy who's going to throw for 30-plus touchdowns, a guy who's going to win a playoff game, a guy who's going to do the things you want to see from a franchise quarterback. And I think the Bears just have to make that decision to move on, as tough as it is emotionally for a lot of the the, the uh, fans who have rallied behind Justin Fields. So I expect to see them trade Caleb Williams. And unfortunately, part of that is also – or I'm sorry, draft Caleb Williams – and unfortunately, a part of that is trading away Justin Fields. Um, you know, Justin Fields has been a leader. He's somebody that the players and the media and the fans have rallied behind. And it's really tough to have a personality like that that so many people love in the locker room with a rookie quarterback. So as great as it sounds in theory to maybe trot Justin Fields out for another year and have Caleb Williams sit on the bench, I think you run the risk of splitting the locker room there. So there's reports that Justin Fields could be going for a first-round pick, maybe a day-two pick. We'll see, but I think that they just need to draft Caleb Williams and then take the best available offer they can get for Justin Fields. Should be an interesting offseason in Chicago, no question about that. Dave Kluge of Football Guys. Tell us about Football Guys and where people can find you. Yeah, you know, I want to shout out for anybody that's diving into rookie analysis. Our team just put together uh, a rookie draft guide with over 100 rookie scouting uh, portfolios on there. Uh, you know, we talk about the uh, best scheme fits. We talk about, uh, you know, where we expect them to be drafted. And we go deep. You know, we've got over 60 wide receivers, over 40 running backs, uh, over 100 rookies right now. You can get that at footballguys.com slash rookie guide. Uh, that, that's the main thing I want to plug right now. I didn't even have any part in that. We've got some other guys on our staff that have been working hard and diligently at that, but we just rolled it out a couple of days ago. I spent a two and a half hour flight the other day going through it and only got about a quarter of the way through. It is just jam packed with information on this incoming rookie class. Well, we absolutely love it. Dave Kluge of football guys, Dave, first time you and I have spoken in a while. Won't be the last really enjoyed the conversation. Let's do it again, maybe around free agency and let's see where the Jaguars stand at that point. I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you very much. Appreciate you having me on, Ryan. There you go. Dave Kluge of Football Guys here with us on Hacker After Dark. And it's interesting. He's based close to Chicago, so he's been doing a lot on Caleb Williams versus Justin Fields. I thought they were going to retain Justin Fields. Remember, they have the number one pick because of the Carolina trade with Bryce Young last year. But it does appear the more people you talk to that Chicago – may indeed draft Caleb Williams and may indeed trade Justin Fields, which is a pretty crazy notion to think about as recently as a month or two ago, but that seems to be at least the direction the rumors are taking us here in the middle part of February. We will certainly have to wait and see. Of course, the Jaguars pick 17th in the NFL draft. It's that time. The Combine, they're on the field two weeks from tomorrow in Indianapolis for the scouting Combine. Around here, that means our guys at the Draft Network. The Draft Network does a terrific job 
and Damian Parson is a part of the Draft Network. Let's talk about the 2024 draft class. But more so than that, I want to bring it back to Jacksonville. I want to talk Anton Harrison, Britton Strange, Tank Bigsby, a little Devin Lloyd, a little, obviously, Trayvon Walker. Let's talk about the young nucleus here in Jacksonville moving forward and what the Jaguars need in rounds one and two of the NFL draft. Damian Parson of the Draft Network is next. Hacker After Dark on a Wednesday night here in Jacksonville. It's 1010XL and it's 92. Point five FM. Swing up another guest on the All Pro Roofing phone line. Back here on Ten Ten XL and ninety two point five FM in the city of Jacksonville. We are glad you are with us. The NFL offseason has officially begun after Kansas City wins another Super Bowl. Boy, Patrick Mahomes, Andy Reid, Travis Kelsey, absolutely unstoppable. And for teams like Jacksonville, we have six months to figure out how to stop them prior to the 2024 season. Franchise tags will come out in a couple of weeks. Free agency about a month away. And then, of course, the NFL draft is not that far down the road. With all that being said, let me welcome in Damian Parson. He is with the Draft Network. He hosts the Locked on NFL Draft podcast. We'll tell you all about that as well. Damian, always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Damian, how you doing? I am doing good. I'm doing good, Ryan. Just uh, enjoying, you know, it's just this draft season. So it's, you know, that time where I get to really have all the fun, but just enjoying it, man. Yeah, it's your time of year, man. There's no question about that. Briefly, I want to get into the Jags and certainly this draft class coming up with you, but Kansas City, darn near unstoppable, a third Super Bowl for Patrick Mahomes. Damian, what's your takeaway from what the Chiefs accomplished this year? Oh man, it was it was a great season for them, right? Where where the level of difficulty, the degree of difficulty, had kind of ratcheted up. It, it increased this season because of the fact that with no Tyreek Hill, with no true wide receiver one coming into the season, you were relying heavily on a, a, a older version of Travis Kelsey, and then it turns out to be rookie Rasheed Rice. And uh, this, I think, offensively they went through their kind of bumps and bruises at times, and. It wasn't always pretty, but when you have a guy, a quarterback like Patrick Mahomes, who you can see when that shift take place, takes place in the middle of a game, like we saw last night uh, on one or two of those runs late in that game where you just saw the look on his face and the look in his eyes, like, we're not about to lose this. And, you know, at worst, we're getting into we're going into overtime. So, like, they, what they were able to do with Mahomes – uh, head coach Andy Reid, man, it was an outstanding season for them. Back-to-back champions. Um, it's such an incredible feat, especially with the roster that they have, especially on the offensive side of the ball. I think the concerning thing, Damian, for people like us here in Jacksonville is they looked vulnerable at times this year. This wasn't exactly a great Kansas City mm-hmm. Chief team. Go back to Christmas, there was even thought then when the Raiders beat them, could they win the division? Could they hold on to the West? But my gracious, man, when they turned it on in the postseason, there was no stopping them. I know a lot will transpire this offseason, but clearly they're going to be the overwhelming favorites heading into 2024. 100%. And I think, you know, you look at um, you look at teams like the, the, the Baltimore Ravens and stuff like that, teams that really kind of pushed them to their brink. Baltimore beat themselves, you know, and, and with uh, tur- turnovers, poor play calling, things of that nature, and, and you know, 
if you if you give Mahomes and the Chiefs an opportunity, you right. You, you give them an inch, they're gonna take a mile, and they, they're gonna take every bit of what you give them, and and plus that. So they're they're absolutely gonna come into the season. You know, especially depends on what they do free agent wise and NFL draft. You know, Chris Jones is gonna be a free agent. You know, their star defensive player on the interior defensive line. So you can't lose him. You don't want to at least. I think Legarius Sneed is also a guy that's up for a deal. So. Brett Veach has some some working to do in terms of contracts and everything. And then, of course, trying to, to retool this offense so that, you know, Pat Mahomes has a little bit of an easier uh, 2024 uh, than he did in 2023. Damian Parson of the Draft Network. He's also the host of the Locked On NFL Draft podcast. We'll tell you all about that in just a moment. All right, Damian, I want to talk about this year's draft class. Before we get there, Let's spend a moment on some guys here in Jacksonville. You know, the collapse at the end of the year was terrible. They start eight and three. They lose five out of six. They miss the playoffs. I believe they are the sixth team Jacksonville is that started eight and three to miss the playoffs since the turn of the century. But amid the collapse, which was awful, one of the things that didn't get talked about enough, at least to me, was Trayvon Walker, man. I thought even though the losses were piling up, Damian, towards the end of the year, I thought Trayvon Walker started showing a little bit. Oh, 100%. Um, and I was happy to see it. You know, he, you know, of course, when they took him number one overall over Aiden Hutchinson, um, you know, everyone was shocked and, uh, you know, a lot of different emotions and to where especially when Aiden started his career off, was such a fiery start and everything. And, you know, you knew that Trayvon was always going to be compared to that guy. And to see him step up and start to make those those necessary developmental moves this season was outstanding. And I, it was always a guy that, you know, a lot, you know, scouting Georgia, uh, who's in my region with the draft network when I, you know, for college scouting, Georgia, you look at their defensive lineman, a lot of these guys don't come out very technically refined. Right, I only the only one that really came out like that was Jalen Carter with their hand usage, deconstructing blocks, reducing hitting surface, you know, stuff like that, and where the other guys are just told to go out there and be a big physical athlete, be bigger, stronger, faster than the next guy, and that's what they did. So it it, it took a little bit for Trayvon, but I think you know we're seeing the arrow point upward for him, where he gives you inside outside rush capability. If this was a team that wanted to add another, I would say, I like to call a DPR, um, designated pass rusher, a, a fastball of sorts through the draft, uh, or even in free agency, the guy that comes off, comes on the field for third downs only and kick him and kick uh, Trayvon Walker inside as like a three-tech, I think that that would do wonders for him as well because he's just so versatile, so athletic, so strong, with great arm length and a great body type. Man, you can do a lot of different things front with him. So just, you know, you want to just can see that. You want to see that continued growth and just consistency going forward. But I'm excited for what uh, the future holds for Trayvon Walker. Yeah, I agree. Trayvon Walker from three and a half sacks his rookie year to 10 sacks in year two. Arrow pointing up on him. The guy drafted with him in the first round in 2022, Devin Lloyd, Damian. I'm not sure if the arrow is pointing up there yet. Dare I say maybe disappointing the first two years in for Devin Lloyd. What's your thought on him moving forward? Man, I, I think this is a guy that, for me, the questions I always had was more so was kind of processing information 
and then of course uh, pass coverage. It was always kind of the things I, I wondered with him, and I haven't seen uh, any evidence that those things have really taken a step with him. And it's just kind of been unfortunate. He's you know you know good player, you know good prospect coming in, had the tools that you want at the linebacker position, but if if he can't diagnose quick enough, um, I never felt like he was going to be great taking on. Uh, you know, blocks from climbing offensive linemen. So you're talking about possibly, you know, keep trying to keep him a little bit on the outside uh, of the box where he can kind of just kind of see ball, get ball. You might have to just kind of reduce the the, the assignment for him. And a lot of times that works for linebackers, you know, um, but it's been, it's not been great the first two years. And um, you just hope that this off season, uh, you know, that he can kind of, you know, find, like hit the, you know, whether it's, just him, you know, him himself, just studying more or just working out and getting that confidence within himself to know, hey, I'm a good player. I have everything it takes. I just got to go put it out on the field. A couple of more for Damian Parson of the Draft Network. He's also the host of the Locked On NFL Draft podcast. Last year, Damian, the Jaguars at number 27. You really don't know what to expect from number 27. Uh, it's late in the first round. They took a kid, Anton Harrison, out of Oklahoma. I didn't know much about him at the time. But I think pretty quickly I discovered they might have found one there. I'm not sure how many offensive tackles had a better rookie year in 2023 than Anton Harrison. What was your takeaway from him? Love, I loved Anton, especially as a prospect uh, coming out of Oklahoma. Um, athletic, strong, um, you know, good build and frame, tough, gritty. You know, he brought all of those things. I thought he had good hand technique, hand carriage wasn't too low and too wide. That you know, I always compare offensive line, defensive line uh, battles like boxing. If your hands are not up, man, you, you're always subject to a knockout blow from the right boxer. And it's the same thing. I always felt like he protected himself well and was always able to kind of fit, refit, relatch his hands. Just a good player overall. I was impressed with him, and I was excited for it because I was a, he was a guy I really liked when I when I really get studied his tape later in the process of the 2023 NFL draft. I was really excited to see the, the type of uh, model of, of tackle that he brought into the draft. And I was like, okay, this is a guy. Get him in there. I'm starting him probably right away. I'm going to let him go ahead and get that that feel for the game, get the speed of the game down. Because I think this is a guy that could be a high-level starting right tackle for seven to ten years in the NFL. We don't know what they're going to do yet with Cam Robinson. Cam Robinson's owed a lot of money. They could potentially save a lot of money if they cut him in the next couple of weeks. Assuming that's the route they go, again, we don't know that, but assuming that's the route they go, there's a conversation down here, Damian, about moving Anton Harrison potentially to left tackle. What would your thoughts be on that? I think he's athletically uh, gifted enough to do it. I always, I always say – Air on the side of caution with that, mainly because it takes some time because it's of the mental, of the physical ability to, and the muscle memory to go from setting everything with your right foot back, right, and opening that right, that right hip and that right gate to now you got to do it from the left side. And especially after the season he had, it's just like, man, like that would be kind of a tough call. But if you're going to do it, I think you need to make that decision quick and early. The reason why, so that he, you already let him know, hey, we're going to have you playing left tackle this year, big fella. And if you, if you go ahead and let him know early in the process, because a lot of these guys have their own personal offensive line coaches, then a lot of them do go to uh, Duke Manny Weathers 
O-line masterminds camp and everything. So you want him to get the ball rolling. You want to give him that head start. Like, hey, go ahead and start getting yourself prepared physically to play left tackle. And it's because if so, then that gives him that time to really get his, his, his body down. Get, you know, get that comfort, right? You know what I mean? It's like telling a boxer to switch from right-handed to left. And it's like, I've never really boxed southpaw. It was like southpaw. So it's like, well, we're going give to you, give you a head start, give you some time before your next battle so you can go ahead and get used to it. I think he physically can do it. But if you're going to make that decision, make it quick so he can go ahead and get prepared. Yeah, I agree. Again, we'll probably have some clarity on Cam Robinson here locally within the next couple of weeks. Final moments, Damian Parson, the Draft Network. You also hear him on the Locked On NFL Draft podcast. It's a good thing Anton Harrison was good last year, Damian, because good grief. Brenton Strange, Tank Bigsby, uh, Ventro Miller got hurt in the preseason. The Jaguars just did not get a lot out of their other draft picks that were drafted reasonably high. Is it time to hit the panic button for Strange and Bigsby, or is it still too early? Uh, no, still too early. I think um, the offensive offensive line, you know, they continue to improve that and get – Especially with Bigsby, he's a downhill physical runner who has really good footwork to be able to work um, to the outside. I think the speed of the game, letting the game slow down for him, getting those touches um, is going to be big for him, You know, especially with the running back position. The more touches you get, the quicker the game will slow down for you. And I think once the game slows down for Tank, I think he was, he's going to be a good complement to Travis Etienne because he's going to bring more of that between-the-tackles run style that – ETN doesn't bring. He's more of the home run hitter, space uh, space player, where, you know, when you have Tank, you can absolutely run power, gap, counters, but also you can run him on the on the outside as well because this is a kind of a 4-4, four, 4-5 four, four, type of athlete. And I think with Britton Strange, he was always raw to me uh, as a tight end, but you love the athletic tools and the athletic ability and the size, the speed, the catch radius. You love those things. Now it's all about getting him – in terms of route tempo, um, you know, uh, coveraging, you know, coverage and leveraging uh, with defensive coverages to identify that as a tight end. If you're in line or if you detach into the slot, you want to be able to uh, dictate and diagnose quickly. Right, is this zone? Where is this guy dropping? Is he curl of flats? If he's, if, is he hook zone? You know, is he middle, middle of the field uh, defender? Where is he going? And then find those soft spots because of the guy with, his size, athleticism. If you're facing zone, you want to be able to be to to get make yourself available for your quarterback as quickly as possible. So then you can allow your natural athleticism to kind of take over after the catch. I think it's early for both of those guys. I'm excited to see what they look like year two in this Doug Peterson-led offense. Yeah, the hope is they'll get considerably better, no question about it. Damien, as we wrap up the 24 draft class, and we'll hopefully have you on maybe post-combine, certainly before the draft again a couple of times, to really break down and dissect it. But to me, and I'm curious your thoughts, depending on what happens in free agency, of course, because this all could change in a month, the Jaguars need some big uglies, man. I need some beef. Mm -hmm on the interior offensive line and the interior defensive line, the Jaguars were getting pushed around towards the end of the year. I mean, is that the way you see it? Give me some guys on the line of scrimmage here in Jacksonville. Oh, 100%. Yeah, the, the, the trenches, the, the phrases and, and this, the old mantra, games I want to lost in the trenches. And I think that was the big part of them, similar to what we talked about with Tate. I don't think the team, the, the, the front line or offense or defense was just physical enough 
So I think on the offensive, interior offensive line, especially uh, when you think about Jackson Powers Johnson from Oregon, who uh, played center, but, you know, down in Mobile at the Senior Bowl, he took some snaps at guard in one-on-ones. This is an athletic mover. He's physical. He's strong. He plays with a nasty mentality. Um, and that he, and this offensive line needs that, right? Uh, you think about um, Cedric Van Pran out of Georgia, a guy who could play super, who I think he's mostly a center, but like a guy that's also aggressive, you know, from the SEC, athletic, um, can you know run blocks, especially in the zone game, but also get out as a puller um, in, in the passing game and the screen game, but also lead, lead blocking on like tall sweeps and everything like that. Uh, Cooper Beebe is a guy that you think about from Kansas State guard who's definitely day two nine times out of ten. But you're talking about a, a bully, a bouncer of sorts outside the club that's just getting guys out of the way. He's going to help someone's run game. If you want to be physical, you want to add some some oomph to your offensive line, Cooper Beebe can do every bit of that. And I really love what he brings, especially on gap scheme runs. Uh, to be able to move bodies, get to the second level, create not just alleys, but even some freeways and highways for the running backs to take their to 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 hit those lanes and get upfield, and of course to protect Trevor Lawrence so he can feel comfortable to slide and move in the pocket uh, like a veteran because he's going to be a veteran quarterback. You know, before it's all said and done, you need him to be able to feel comfortable in the pocket defensively. Um, I mean, you think about Tavondre Sweat from Texas. 6'3", six, 6'4", six, legit 360. Saw him down at, uh, at, at the uh, Senior Bowl as well. Big, physical, quick athlete. Reminds me a lot of Jordan Davis, who came out of Georgia, who went to the Philadelphia Eagles. I think he could be an actual more in, like immediate impact uh, as a three-down defensive lineman and everything. Um, his teammate, Byron Murphy the second, another guy, you know, about 6'2", 305, 310, physical, strong at the point of attack, can handle double teams on the interior. Has played some zero, some one, some three eye, and even four, uh, three and four eye. He can play all along the defensive line. But a guy that I think, you know, let's say just being physical, Rook Ororo, uh, interior defensive line from uh, Clemson. You know, I think it's like six two. 6'3", another 300, 305-pounder, uh, a guy that holds up very well at the point of attack. I believe he has th- over 34-inch arms, strong, physical, uh, just really makes it hard in terms of moving him off the spot. He can handle some double teams as well. And then he also has upside as a pass rusher. And at the end of the day, with Anthony Richardson, with Will Levis, uh, with C.J. Stroud, you want to be able to stop the run and have guys that can stay on the field and get into the backfield. I think those guys can do those things. No, that's great stuff. Look, it's not glamorous. It's not going to be the most sexy position. I don't think season tickets are going to be sold by drafting interior or <laughs> interior D-linemen or O-linemen, but that's what the Jaguars need, man. They need to get their hands dirty this offseason. They were not physical enough at the end of the year. There is no question about that. All right, Damian, uh, the Draft Network is where people can read your great stuff. Tell us about the podcast that you have five days a week. Yes, sir. With the Locked On Podcast Network, me and my colleague from the Draft Network, he's my co-host, Keith Sanchez, uh, former coach from uh, the 2019 LSU uh, National Champions with Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase. We talk NFL Draft five days a week, Monday through Friday, uh, going through whether it's Mock Draft Monday. We talk about 
just we previously scout and talk about these players on, on air, um, have interviews coming through. Uh, we had Janagi on right before the senior bowl and everything. So definitely you want to get your fix. If you're not much of a reader, you're more of a listener. Come tune in to the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast Monday through Friday every week. Absolutely great stuff. Damian Parson, the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast, also the Draft Network. Damian, really enjoyed the conversation, man. Thank you as always. We'll do it again post-combine, right around free agency, and we'll see where things stand right here in Jacksonville. Thank you, my friend. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. No problem. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville, we are glad you are with us. We have reached the middle portion of February. Believe it or not, we are roughly one month away from Selection Sunday. And now that word that we all throw around, bracketology, begins to take over our vocabulary. And one of the main guys when it comes to bracketology is Jerry Palm, CBSSports.com. He's been doing it for years, and Jerry's always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Jerry, how you doing? I'm all right. How are you? Hey, Jerry, we're good. I know you're very busy this time of year. You're putting out brackets left and right over there on CBSSports.com. Does it get any easier as you do this year after year or in the middle of February, you're just kind of throwing darts at a dartboard at this point? Well, it's not quite as much dart throwing when you get to this time of year, but sure, January brackets, there's a little bit of that. Uh, you haven't even really gotten, you know, well situated in a conference play yet. At least now we're past the halfway point of conference play for most. And so you've got a pretty good idea what these teams are. Obviously, a lot of movement is going to happen in the last month here, uh, but um, you're starting to, to see, you're starting to get a better feel for what these teams really are. You know, it's interesting this time of year, and this is new terminology in, I guess, the last five years, quad one wins, right, compared to yeah. quad two and quad three. Right. I think there's even a quad four. There Jerry, are. for us that are not as educated on that, what exactly does that mean? So they use this was introduced in 2018, the last year of the RPI, and then the, the net started in 2019. And and what they did, I mean, there were always quadrants before, but they never used them. But they basically put your opponents into four buckets on their team sheets, and by quality of the opponent. And what changed the reason the, the term quadrant came along is that it used to just be like top 50, top 100, top 200. And that was it. You didn't really need to describe it. Now there's a home and road neutral aspect to it. So the rankings in each bucket are different uh, for home road neutral. Um, but it's still the same thing. Quad one is considered your toughest games. Quad two, the next group, quad three. And then quad four, which is the largest um, in terms of the rankings, is um, is considered your least difficult opponent. So the committee looks at it gives them an idea of you know, the kinds of teams that you played, uh, it, you know, and obviously you see the results that matters. So if you've played a lot of quad one games, it makes sense that you've probably played a really strong schedule. Um, so, and most of the teams in the tournament are going to come from quad one games, those kinds of games, but there'll be quad two teams, even in, from the at-large pool, um, quad two teams, uh, or teams that are mostly in quad two. Uh, will still make the tournament as that large team. So it's um, it just gives the committee a way to 
organize a team's schedule and results in a way that 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 is, gives them good information about those games. Jerry Palm of CBSSports.com. Jerry, we'll get to Florida in a little bit, but I want to use them as an example right here. For the longest time, we saw the Gators were over in Quad One. That has since changed with wins over Kentucky and Auburn. But they also said that there was no bad losses, that they were undefeated against quads two, three, and four. What weighs more, a good quad one win or, say, a terrible loss to a quad four team? It really depends on the rest of the profile, you know, what stands out about it. Um, you know, like Northwestern has got a pretty good resume and a home loss to Chicago State. And the, the, one of the weaknesses of, Notre, of Northwestern's resume is that they're kind of a home court hero. They're really good on their home floor, not so great away from home, and uh, still really looking for their first win away from home against a, a team that might be a threat to make the tournament. Uh, but when you're a home court hero and you lose at home to Chicago State, which is a quad four loss, it looks even worse. Uh, so maybe you're not as much of a home court hero as we thought, um, and you're not winning on the road. So um, so it's, it's things like that. Uh, so that game kind of stands out more than maybe a, not some random quad four loss for a team that's losing to teams up and down the bracket uh, or the, um, the 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 strength of of you know you've got losses in each of the quadrants like Florida Atlantic has got a loss in each quadrant, um, which is kind of weird, uh, but it you know it tells you that maybe they're not always there, they don't always show up to play. Uh, anyway, so it's. there is no good answer to your question whether a good win means you know a quad one win means more than a quad four loss it's it's just one piece of a a bigger picture and they're not going to be looking just at one game and overvaluing one game one of your latest articles on cbssports.com jerry i thought you did a terrific job in taking us inside the mind of the committee Uh, and you talk about how you've said this for years if you ask a committee member what do you look for in that room come Selection Sunday? It comes down to four questions. Who did you play? Where did you play them? Who did you beat? And who beat you? That sounds very simple, but at the it end is. of the day, that's what it's all about, right? It's very yep. simple. It's a very results-oriented process. So, And what you don't hear there is how much did you beat them by? That's not one of the questions. That That's not really important to them yet. You've got metrics, including the net, by the way, the NCAA's metric, that are heavily influenced by margin of victory. So, But the committee's not using the net to pick the teams. They're using the net only to put you know, teams in the team sheets in the correct quadrant. That's, all it, that's the only purpose it serves. So they're not sitting around and saying, well, this team's got a higher net or it's got a higher Ken Palm ranking, therefore we should take them and not the other. It's, the, the metrics don't have that much influence. Um, and especially the ones that are not results oriented, you know, like those two, um, when it's a basically results oriented process. So, um, you know, the metrics are on the team sheets. It means something to somebody. But if all you have is metrics, you don't really have anything. A couple of more for Jerry Palm, CBSSports.com. Before we dive into some of the teams, including Florida, you mentioned Ken Palm. That's another saying that we hear this time of year. Jerry, what is that? It's it's a metric. Uh, it's a you know a way of ranking teams. Now Ken is specifically trying to predict point spreads, so obviously it's going to be heavily influenced by point spreads because that's what you want to predict. So 
um, it's another one that the net actually correlates very closely to, to Ken Pop, um, those rankings. So, you know, if you see teams like uh, Gonzaga, for example, I think it's top 25 in the net and Ken Palm and the, you know, but their resumes don't stack up. Gonzaga isn't in my bracket. They're close, but they're not in Michigan State's in the middle of the bracket after beating Illinois. But if you look at it, uh, find a, a page somewhere that's got average margin of victory for college basketball teams, those two teams are going to be higher on the list because that those metrics are measuring are largely, you know, based on margin of victory. So, um, that's so Ken's rankings are similar in that regard. The net's not trying to predict scoring margins and Ken, Ken is, um, and the net's got a, a results oriented component to it, but it's primarily margin of victory. Florida was on the outside looking in for a large portion of this year. Then all of a sudden they go to Rupp arena. They beat Kentucky. They lose to A&M, but then they turn right back around and knock off Auburn. So now we talk about those quad one wins, two quad yep. one wins for Todd Golden in Florida. And I know in your rankings, Jerry, in your bracketology, Florida now comfortably in as an eight seed. Yeah. Um, that, that speaks not just about Florida, but the the teams competing with them for spots in the bracket uh, are more highly flawed than, than Florida is. And, I mean, you mentioned earlier, Florida doesn't have a bad loss. All seven of their losses are against quad one teams. And, most of them, well, I think all of them are currently in my bracket. Virginia is relatively new to the bracket, but, um, you know, these are all, they've, they've lost to good teams. Now, it's been home and it's been away, but it's, you know, they don't have the, the, the eyesore loss sticking out there that, that really drags you down. And that level of consistency is something that's actually appealing to the committee. They know what they're going to get from Florida. They're going to show up to play. It's going to take a good team to beat them. You know, that, that kind of a thing. By the way, one of their quad two, wins uh mississippi state is also in the bracket as an at-large team so uh that's an example of a team it's a quad two game because they played them at home but that's why you know sometimes quad two teams end up in the bracket as well 16 and 7 6 and 4 in the sec is there a magic number i mean people around here say 20 if florida gets to 20 they're almost a shoe in to get in would you agree with that uh i don't ever make predictions like that because it depends on how you get to 20. Um, you know, if you just beat LSU and Vanderbilt and Mizzou and you take what, four more losses to tournament teams, you're probably in a little trouble. You know, you haven't really helped yourself. You're just, you're still going to have two, maybe three wins over tournament teams, but now you've got four more losses. That gets to be pretty ugly. So it really does matter you know, who you beat uh, to get to whatever magic number you think it is. But the other thing you're kind of ignoring here is the conference tournament. That's another loss. Uh, if you don't win it, if you're not the automatic qualifier, that's another loss. And who did you play in the tournament before you lost? And and that kind of thing matters. The conference tournament matters. Uh, it's They don't overvalue it, but they're neutral site games. Uh, so that's uh, something potentially helpful, but also, you know, you can get quality wins or bad losses there too. And if you're right on the cut line, that can, that can be meaningful to you. Jerry Palm, CBSSports.com. Jerry, the rest of the Southeastern Conference. I'm not sure if it's the best conference in college basketball, but I think it's in the conversation. It's a good yeah. year in the SEC. I mean, what are we thinking? Seven, maybe eight teams that get in? 
Well, my current bracket has nine. Wow. Um, it might not be a sustainable number. I mean, there's a month to go, and, and teams are playing each other, right? So you would think at some point, well, you know, these guys are beating each other up a little bit. Maybe one falls off. Um, somebody finishes poorly, something like that. Uh, but I, I would say nine is a maximum, uh, it, but probably in the seven to nine range. Um, and, and there's going to be – there are definitely teams uh, we know – uh, that are good enough to compete for a national championship in the SEC this year, Tennessee most notably. Um, so, you know, we'll find out. But uh, I, I would say the 7-9 to nine range in terms of uh, teams actually getting in. As it stands right now, like you said, a month out, who are your four number one seeds? Uh, Purdue, Connecticut, Houston, uh, and Arizona. Uh, the fourth one has been a revolving door the last couple of weeks. I don't think I've had two brackets in a row for the same team in the number four spot. Uh, but it's uh, uh, right now, Arizona was Tennessee before Carolina has been in, in and out of that spot. So yeah, it's, um, but Purdue, Connecticut, Houston are really solid. Purdue is a very solid number one. I mean, the one, two, three are, are really, you know, I, I don't say set in stone, but for right now, there's, a clear delineation, Purdue, UConn, Houston, and then uh, there's a gap to the rest of college basketball. Final moments, Jerry Palm, CBSSports.com. Jerry, as we begin to wrap up, is this going to be a wide-open tournament? I mean, is there a handful of teams that you think could win it, or is this thing going to be open to a couple dozen maybe? Well, I I always – I don't know about a couple dozen, but I always feel like – I mean, last year was an aberration. You know, it was just – it was a weird tournament from the beginning to the end. Um but UConn won, and that they were a really good team. They had they were fabulous for the first two months or so, and then they they had a rough schedule to start a Big East play, and then they got things going again. And we shouldn't be surprised that even though they were a four seed, that they were good enough to win. But for the most part, we've got eight to ten teams that are good enough to string six in a row together against this group. But you know, all it takes is somebody not out not in that group to get hot, and they can be right there too. You've been doing bracketology for college basketball for years. Are you going to be the bracketologist when it comes to college football this upcoming season? I, I have been. I've been doing that as well. I've been doing football too. Well, um, now lo- it was only a fourteen bracket. Yeah, know, about to say time. a lot easier with now, four. Now, now it's going to be twelve. I actually don't know that it's going to be that much harder. Really, uh, four to twelve. I, four might have been harder because you're leaving out really good teams there. When you get down to twelve, uh, I. I think that there's going to be, I think it'll be an easier time trying to figure out who at least 11, you know, the top 11 are, then you're going to have a, an automatic qualifier from the outside the major conferences that, you know, could get up in that level sometime, but most often than not, will be outside that top 11. Jerry, tell the good folks here in Jacksonville, man, cbssports.com, what you have coming out on the website in the coming days and weeks. Yeah. Well, the, the next um, thing that's, noteworthy is the NCAA is going to have their bracket reveal show on Saturday on CBS. Uh, I think it's at uh, noon and um, where the NCAA gives us their top 16 at the time uh, as of Saturday morning. So um, that's always interesting to get a look uh, at um, what's going on in the minds of the committee, a snapshot in February, a month out from selection Sunday. I'll be part of that show. Um, and then I have brackets Mondays and Fridays until we get closer to the end when they become daily. He's one of the best in the business. Jerry Palm, CBSSports.com. Jerry, know you're busy. Thank you for the time. We'll do it again soon. All right, thanks.
Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. It is a Wednesday evening, and we are glad you are with us. The Super Bowl in the rearview mirror. That means the NFL offseason now officially begins, and boy, it'll get here quick. Franchise tags can be handed out next week. The Combine in Indianapolis is only two weeks away, and we are 26 days away from NFL free agency. With all that, let me go to my friend Leon Searcy, former Pro Bowl offensive tackle for the Jacksonville Jaguars. You hear him every day on primetime. You get him weekly here on Hacker After Dark. Leon, how you doing, man? I'm good, bro. Leon, there's a lot to get into with you. A lot's transpired since the last time you and I talked, but of a form or I guess a final thought from both of us on the Super Bowl Leon, you know how hard it is to get there. You know how hard it is to win in the NFL. You played in the league for 11 years. Do you marvel at what Kansas City's been able to do over the last half decade? I have, Hack. I mean, I, you're witnessing greatness. I mean, a lot of people, uh, you, you know, you've got to take a fond appreciation for what Kansas City has done over the last half decade or the last six seasons. You're talking about six straight AFC championships. You're talking about Patrick Mahomes winning three out of the last five. Uh, Super Bowls, and you know it's officially a dynasty. You know I like to equate dynasties when they went back to back. You know I wasn't quite ready to give them that dynasty uh, keynote until they won back to back, and they did it. They did it this past Sunday. They did it in Patrick Mahomes fashion. You know Patrick Mahomes uh, late in the game with him um, in overtime, wanted the football, took control of the game, absolutely dismantled the Forty ers uh, defense that looked gassed and they looked confused and out of place a lot of the times, especially down the stretch. So that was unfortunate that that 49ers defense in that overtime bid uh, didn't play his best football. But, you know, they didn't play their best football because Patrick Mahomes made them look their unbest. So, yeah, that Kansas City Chiefs team, that what they're doing right now is special, especially in this day and age. We, you know, uh, individuals wanting to get paid and salary caps and free agencies and guys moving and maneuvering. Uh, into different places. So, yeah, what they're doing is special. They are definitely a dynasty. You know, Leon, you played in a day and time where you competed against John Elway and the Broncos, Dan Marino and the Miami Dolphins, Jim Kelly, obviously, right, and the, the Buffalo Bills. I mean, some Hall of Famers, some greats of the greats, Troy Aikman and the Dallas Cowboys. And, and yet you look at Mahomes – and he might already be better than all those guys. I mean, maybe only second to Tom Brady or maybe third, I guess, to Montana, debate, uh, whichever debate you want to have. What makes 28-year-old Patrick Mahomes as good as he is? Well, you know, Hack, in my era, I have played against some dominant teams in my era that I can equate that, that were, were dynasties in their own right. You know, the Dallas Cowboys in the 90s, I played against those teams. I played against the Elway teams that went back to back and won Super Bowls. But I kind of look at that like this, Hack. You know, I got I have remember when I had my little son, I used to take him to the playground. And he used to play with the kids, and then he when he would come back mad and upset, I said, Who did it? And he said, Him there. Right <laughs> now, Patrick Mahomes is him there. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He he's that guy. He is that guy. I have not seen anybody quite like him in a very, very long time. Listen, when I used to play, there's only one guy I used to get up out of my seat and be concerned that he could come back and win a game against you because I, John Elway. John Elway used to be a guy that I didn't care how many points we were up. If you gave him the ball with two minutes to go, 
there was a likelihood that you were going to lose the game or you're going to come close to losing the game. And Patrick Mahomes, in my opinion, runs circles around John Elway, in my opinion, as far as his mystique, as far as his accountability, as far as his clutch gene, as far as his magic in his hands, you know, the magician, the wand, the cape, the rabbit in the hat, all that. He's that guy. So it's been a very long time since I've been able to say that him there is something very special. Yeah, there's no question about it. It was unfortunate that he did not get in. Hopefully he'll get in uh, later on down the road. Leon, obviously a lot of questions with the Jaguars coming into this offseason. They begin next week with the franchise tag. They can be handed out from February 20th to March the 5th. Is your expectation that Josh Allen will, be get, will get the franchise tag here in Jacksonville? Uh, yeah, more, more than likely. Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, I don't like the franchise tag because essentially, you know, it gives the organization more time to uh, – it gives them more time to 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 do a contract which they knew they had time to do way before, and I, I that may not sound as eloquently spoken as it should be, but I just feel that the, the player is put at bay because not when the player doesn't sign the contract before the start of the season, he's putting he's risking losing money by playing out the season, and then when he goes and has the kind of season that Josh Allen has he should be rewarded for going out and playing that season that he played. But then the front, then the organization knows they have the leverage because they could put a tag on them and then they could uh, uh, take their time and, and, and evaluate what kind of money they want to give them when they had all season to make that determination. A couple of more for former Jaguar Pro Bowl offensive tackle, Leon Searcy. Leon, I love Josh Allen. Obviously, he had an incredible year. But you look at the previous three years, 2020, 2021, and 2022, if we're just talking strictly about quarterback sacks, he had 17 and a half those three years combined. He had 17 and a half in 2023. I mean, do you believe Josh Allen warrants top five edge rusher money, 25, 26, even $27 million a year? Uh, well, you know, hacking really does. Well, what I think doesn't matter is what the market dictates, to be quite honest with you. I mean, and you're right. I'm concerned at the fact that he only had double digit sacks twice in his career, his rookie year and last year. Uh, the rest of the, you know, the, all, all those other seasons, you know, he, I used to call him the disappearing act because I, I, you didn't see him. You didn't hear from him at all, you know, midway or halfway or the end of the season. But, you know, that that is to be you know, excluded because right now, all that matters right now is the here and now. The here and now says that a 17 and a half sacks gets you the market value of, of what the other guys are, are, are worth. And, and should the organization be concerned that if you're given this money that he may not live up to the building for the rest of the contract? Absolutely, he should be. Because it always is a, there's always a red flag when a guy, you know, shows up for his uh, – you know, his contract season and balls out, then you're concerned at how he's going to play moving forward. A la Jamal, uh, what, what was the right tackle's name? Uh, Jawan Taylor. Jawan Taylor was was uh, mediocre the mass majority of his career, maybe outside of his rookie year. Then he runs into his last year of his contract and he balls out and he goes out and gets an extension with the Kansas City Chiefs. And right now he's sitting on two Super Bowl rings. So, and he's been he's been 
he's led the NFL in, in penalties over the last two years with the Chiefs. So I guess that doesn't matter. As long as you've got Patrick Mahomes back there, you're going to win Super Bowls. But 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 as far as Josh Allen goes, yeah, this should, you should be concerned with the organization. But, um, you know, uh, he bet on himself, and, and he won. And um, he wants to get paid, and I don't blame him. You know, I want to get to Calvin Ridley in a moment. And again, we're not going to do this every week with you. This will probably be our last, you know, week weekly session until next football season. But certainly we'll have you on free agency when the dust settles. And Calvin Ridley and Ezra Cleveland are probably the next two guys after Josh Allen, Leon, that the Jaguars got to figure out pretty quick what they're doing. Let's go to your position, the offensive line. Did you see enough from Ezra Cleveland to give him pretty decent money to be this team's left guard moving forward? Uh, not really. I mean, I, I, I saw a couple of games where he played in there. I played, saw it left guard, left tackle. I mean, I just got a sample size of, you know, I wish I could have had him the, the mass majority of the season so I can give a, a clear, you know, a pretty clear-cut evaluation on whether we should keep him or not. But, he seems to be well, – listen, with the games that he was in, he was pretty solid. He was pretty solid when he had to play left tackle. He was pretty solid when he played left guard. Now, does that does that equate to him getting a, a huge deal? I don't think so. But, I, I mean, what are your options? I mean, you've got to do something to fix that interior of that offensive line. I mean, it was shaky at best. No, I mean, shaky's too good for that. It was bad. <laughs> yeah. All right. Interior, yeah. They couldn't run the ball. They couldn't protect the passer. Shaky would be an upgrade considering how they interior the offensive line played last year. Uh, yeah, you're probably going to move on from Ford. Now you're probably going to uh, ask a sheriff to take a pay cut. Probably won't. He probably leave and go into free agency. So you've got to do some. You got to do some rearranging of that interior the offensive line. And if and if you're Trevor Lawrence, uh, you should let them know. Hey, listen, I, you know a lot of my injuries came about you know, a lot of pressures that came up the middle. I'm pre- I think I'm pretty solid on the interior. I think that Walker Little more than likely would be the left tackle. Anton Harrison would be the, the, the Walker Little would be the left. Anton would be the right. But if you fix that interior, that offensive line, I mean, that's going to be a nice security blanket for uh, Trevor moving forward. Leon, as we wrap up, Calvin Ridley, how vital is he to be back here in Jacksonville? Um, well, I mean, you know, Calvin had a solid year for someone who's been away from football for two years. I was expecting a little bit more out of him, you know. Um, you know, I mean, he had over a thousand yards. He had eight touchdowns. I'm not sure how many catches he had. What, 82 catches, 78 catches, something like that, somewhere in that range. But um, I think Calvin Ridley is a good number two. I don't, I don't think he's, a, I don't think he's a number one. And I know he's going to be looking for number one money. But you got to also remember, we paid Christian Kirk like a number one, and I'm not sure he is one of that. I think, I think he's a good number two as well. So I'm pretty sure his age is going to be looking at Christian. Now, we overpaid for Christian Kerr because we needed it. The talent pool in our locker room at that particular time was low. So when we brought Christian Kirk in, he definitely upgraded our wide receiver room, and he got a boatload of money. So I know that Calvin Ridley is going to be looking at Christian Kerr's contract and be saying, you know, I need to be somewhere in that neighborhood. And I'm not sure at this particular time, based upon the efforts that he played in that game, over, I mean, he played throughout the season, and it merits that kind of contract. But I say that, but then a couple of years ago, we gave Christian Kurtz a massive deal to come here in Jacksonville. So they're going to have to make a determination whether they're going to sign him 
to a big deal like that or let him move on into free agency. I think clearly this offseason is going to be much more active for the Jaguars than last offseason was with player movement. There is no doubt about that. Leon, leave us with this. There's a lot of guys that might be asked to take pay cuts or might be asked to rework their contract to free up cap room. How awkward are those conversations? Because I'm sure they're happening right now. Well, I mean, they're awkward if you allow them to be awkward. You know, I mean, I, I, I had to – I wasn't asked to take pay cuts when I was with Jacksonville, but I was asked to re, um, restructure my deal. And when you restructure your deal, whatever your whatever your deal is, dude, you're, you're basically going to get a, a lump sum of money to reduce your salary. So let's say if you get 15 – if your salary is $15 million, the team says, okay, listen, we want to restructure your deal and bring your your cap number – I mean, your salary number down to $5 million, $5 million in a season, but then we're going to give you $5 million now and then you $5 million at the beginning of the season. It's still $10 million in your pocket, you know, even though your your salary uh, is reduced to $5 million. So, I mean, it's a pay cut and take a pay cut or take a restructure is, is, is a big difference. So if these guys are having to take pay cuts, more than likely – uh, they'll probably move on before they do something like that. You get Leon Searcy every day on prime time. You've gotten him weekly here on Hacker After Dark, basically since the middle part of August. Leon, we certainly appreciate it, man. We'll give you a couple of weeks off, but let's do it again around free agency. We'll see what the Jaguars have done with the roster at that point. Appreciate you as always, bud. Thanks, bro. Appreciate it. And thank you to Leon Searcy, former Pro Bowl offensive tackle for the Jacksonville Jaguars. Of course, you get Leon every day on primetime and weekly here on Hacker After Dark. And we certainly appreciate my buddy Leon hanging out with us every week, really, since the middle of August. We'll have Leon on certainly around free agency and the draft and OTAs. It won't be every week again till probably August when we fire it back up for the 2024 season, but he certainly won't be far away. And, of course, you can hear him every day on XL Primetime. Well, that'll just about do it. It has been a very busy Wednesday night edition here of Hacker After Dark on 1010XL and on 92.5 FM. We have a lot of people to thank. Again, Leon Searcy joining us, as he always does every week here on Hacker After Dark. Thank you to Jerry Palm this time of year. One of the terms you hear when it comes to college basketball is bracketology. And Jerry Palm is the bracketologist for CBSSports.com. Really appreciate Jerry coming on to give his insight on the committee, what they're looking for. We certainly touched upon Florida, other teams on the bubble as well. So thank you to Jerry Palm, resident bracketologist of CBSSports.com. Thank you to Damian Parson, the Draft Network. It is that time of year as we're going to start focusing a lot on the NFL Draft. Damian Parson of the Draft Network, appreciate him taking time out for us this evening. And back in hour number one, Dave Kluge of Football Guys. Fantasy football, they're also analytics. They do a lot of stuff at Football Guys. Really enjoyed the conversation with Dave about the Jaguars. He is still very high. Very high on Trevor Lawrence. I know there are some questions that some of you have about Trevor here locally, but a guy like Dave, who does this for a living at Football Guys, still believes Trevor Lawrence is absolutely the guy. 
and it was interesting to get his perspective here on Hacker After Dark. We'll be back tomorrow night on a Thursday, and we will do it all over again beginning at 8 o'clock. Dylan Denmark was your producer tonight. Dylan, great job as always. I'm the Hacker Ryan Green in Jacksonville. Thank you for spending part of your Wednesday evening with us right here on Hacker After Dark on 1010XL and on 92.5 FM. So for all of us here on HAD, have an absolutely terrific remainder of your Wednesday evening, and we will talk to you again tomorrow night on a Thursday beginning at 8 o'clock. Until then, good night, Jacksonville.